Well, I hope you guys are happy. The weather has finally cooled off, and it's football season, right? And that's what you've been waiting for and talking about. And uh, yet at the same time, fall is here, and uh, it'll get better, and we'll enjoy it, and we'll still gripe, won't we? And then winter will come, and we'll still gripe. Then spring will come, and we'll still gripe. I mean, we ought to be the most happy people on the face of the earth, shouldn't we? And we have so much to be thankful for. I want you to use this prayer time today. Certainly intercede. Certainly make sure things are right between you and the Lord and pray for people to be saved. But also give Him thanks. Think about what all He's done. Sometimes I think we go before the Lord bombarding Him with all we want Him to do and we don't stop and think about what He already has done because he's been far better to us than we deserve. And that song, It Is Well With My Soul, that doesn't just mean, are you saved? Okay? Let me just ask you to consider. Your soul is your mind, your will, and your emotions. Now, is it well with your soul? Because you need a renewed mind. You need to make wise decisions and you need to have the peace of God that passes understanding guarding your emotions. Now how are you doing? Some people are saved but they're not doing well in their soul because they're letting all of the things of this world bombard them, take place in their life. They're filled with worry and fear and anxiety and boy that's just toxic, toxic to the joy of the Lord. So let's bow our heads, let's close our eyes. And if you need to come to the altar, you are welcome to come to the altar. Bring your burdens and your needs here. If you need to go and pray with somebody, we want you to do that. It's a good thing to bear one another's burdens, as the Bible says. And one of the ways we do that is through prayer. It could be that you want to send a text to somebody and say, I love you and we just prayed for you. Put it in the plural because it really is a church thing. And uh, let them know that they are loved, missed, or being carried through. That ministers to a lot of people. Technology has a downside, but use it for the glory of God any way that you can. And uh, let's go into this message now with our hearts right with God and truly being able to say that it's well with our souls so that we can listen so that we learn, and so that we can apply what the Word of God says. Okay? Take a moment to pray. Pour your heart out to the Lord to get wherever you need to get, and I'll lead us in just a moment. Could I get a couple of ladies to come up and pray with Sammy? Let's make sure nobody ever comes alone if they come to the altar, okay?
Now I'm going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you either are or know of someone that you would consider a walking, living miracle today? Would you just slip your hand up in the air? Yeah, all over. All over. God is still working. God is still moving. God is still answering prayer. And God still astounds us. Now, take the time to say thank you. Take the time to confess your own sin. Take the time to renew your trust in the Lord. And breathe somebody else's name in prayer. Oh, Father, as we come before you today, forgive us when we forget how great you are. Forgive us when we take for granted your love, as if that's just a given, because it's not. You didn't have to love any of us, and yet you have chosen to do so, and we thank you. We take forgiveness as just something that is just supposed to happen as normal as breathing, and in a sense it is because you're so good and kind and loving and gracious. But don't let us take that for granted. It came at a high cost. We sang about it just now. Our sins were nailed to the cross and they were borne by Christ. We thank you, Father, because we know that you are not only powerful, but you are a loving, caring, compassionate God who walks with us through the valleys and the storms of life even when they are of our own making, you never forsake us. You see us through. And you'll see us through all the way to heaven because, as we sang earlier, you hold us fast. And Lord, if you didn't hold us, we would be gone. We would lose our salvation. We would run from you. But you hold us fast because of your love and because of your promises, because of the covenant that you made with us in your own blood. So thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for all of the things that you have done and are doing and that we trust that you will do in our families, in our children, in our grandchildren, even in our nation, Lord. Glorify your name. Heal our land. And we pray, Father, that it really would be well with our soul. We struggle so much with that. We give you our minds that they might be renewed. We give you our will that every decision we make might be within the will of God, guided by you according to the word of God. And we give you our emotions. We have so much to worry about, to fret about, to think about, to be preoccupied with, and our minds need to rest. May today they rest from the cares of this world because your word says that's what chokes out the scripture in our lives, the cares of this world. We give those to you and we lean back upon the rock, the solid rock of Jesus Christ. And thank you that you have it all in control and thank you that you are our loving Lord. So bless us now as we open up your word. May it be like fresh bread. May we be able to smell it May it be something that we hungry for. May it be something that satisfies us today. Holy Spirit, speak to your children. Draw the lost to faith in Christ and all for the glory of God. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 
Take your Bibles this morning and let's turn back to 1 Thessalonians. I'm excited about this little passage of Scripture that we are going to uh, cover today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now I've entitled it, Approved by God and So We Speak. And I take that title out of the very first verse that we are going to uh, look at in just a moment. Because uh, Paul said, because we have been entrusted with the gospel, approved by God, entrusted with the gospel, therefore, or so, even so, we speak in my translation. Now, I want you to think about the fact that there are some people who speak, but not in a way that is approved by God. Um, I remember hearing uh, John MacArthur he said he was in a prison and he was uh, speaking there and he had a person that came up and talked to him about how he was saved and how much the message meant to him. And, you know, when I, and then, then MacArthur said, what are you in here for? And when the man told him, Dr. MacArthur said, yeah, it might be a better idea if you just kind of keep your mouth shut right now uh, because you're not really a good advertisement for the gospel and for the Lord. You need to gain some credibility over time. There are some people that they go into uh, fairly serious sin and then they confess that, okay, I'm right with God, and they act like everything ought to go back to where it was, and nobody believes them, nobody trusts them. I could name a few names, you probably could too. And so some people speak when maybe they haven't gained the knowledge of the approval of God uh, they've been accepted by God. If they're in Christ, you're always accepted. But the Bible, well, Paul told Timothy, study or be diligent to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. You're always accepted, but God doesn't always approve of everything we do. And some people are speaking when they don't show the approval of God. You could probably think of some examples of uh, that type of thing but that is something that we all ought to consider and then here's another thing we claim to be approved by God or right with God saved by God walking with God whatever you want to put in there and yet we don't speak and I just want to say this if you're not a witness for Christ you're not right with God you're disobedient if you're not speaking up for Christ you're disobedient no wonder that uh, you're not having the joy of salvation. You are commanded to be a witness for Christ. So we got some people that speak maybe when they ought to be a little more quiet and careful. We've got some people who walk around right with God. I'm right with God. I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. I know the Bible. I'm all of this kind of stuff. And yet they're not a witness. Well, then that those things don't add up. Two plus two never equals five, does it? Got to get right with God, and people who are right with God are witnesses for Him. Then here's a third thing I want you to think about. We speak truth, but we do it in an ungodly way. How's that possible? Man, I've known some preachers that what they said was just straight as an arrow. But they did it out of anger. They did it out of jealousy of other people. They did it maybe even as a performance for the crowd and to rev them up. They may do it for an offering. They may do several things like that. You ever known anybody like that? Well, Paul had to deal with that in Philippi. And he said, well, at least Christ is preached. But he wasn't happy about 
the way it was being done because it wasn't being done in a right way. It was being done more to spite Paul than it was to glorify the Lord. So it's possible to say all the right things but not to say them in the right way. I have heard some people that when they give the truth of the Word of God, oh, they're so mean and so angry, and then they wonder why nobody wants to listen to their witness or anything like that. And we are not supposed to be that way. In fact, I want to tell you that as you look at Paul, and sometimes we see his life and we see him in the times when he was bold like a lion, and uh, yet we skip these verses, and these verses are more normative. This is more the way Paul was than the other times. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and we'll begin in verse 4 and we'll read to verse 12. Now listen to this. Who wouldn't want to have uh, a mentor? Who would not want to have a friend? Who would not want to have a pastor? Who would not want to have somebody like this in their life? A dad, a husband. Who would not want this? So let's read it. Okay, Verse 4. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak. Now that's our title. Now he describes it. Not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering, or uh, another translation could say empty, meaningless words, as you know, for a cloak... For covetousness. What does a cloak do? It covers something up. And Paul said we didn't use our language, our words, to cover up the true intent of our heart, which would have been covetousness. He said we weren't like that. And then he says, God is witness. And he says... For neither at any time do we use the flattering words, we just talked about that, as a cloak. God is a witness, a witness of what? Look at verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from men. This is not something they were trying to do to try to build themselves up, did they? Either from you or from others, when we might have made demands... As apostles of Christ. We had rights that we didn't exercise. We yielded our rights instead of demanding our rights. Verse 7. But we were, listen to this description, gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, look at this, look at this, but also our own lives. Why? Because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses. In other words, you've seen this. You can testify of this. And God testifies also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father, 
Gives a metaphor, nursing mother, now a father, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now let me ask you a question. What kind of an impact would that type of person make anywhere on anyone? Well, we don't have to think too hard because Paul was only in Thessalonica for about a month and look at the impact that he made. And this is how he did it. He didn't get it by being belligerent. He didn't get it by being witty. He didn't get it by being a bully. He didn't get it by any of those kind of things. I mean, who wouldn't want to be married to somebody like that? I mean, this is not just about Paul. This is the way we're all supposed to be. Who wouldn't want to be married to a spouse like that? And marriage problems come up and marriages dissolve because nobody wants to act like that. Who wouldn't want to work with somebody like that? Who wouldn't want to be on, a, on an athletic team with somebody like that? I mean, who wouldn't? Who wouldn't want to be around a neighbor like that? You get what we're saying? Who wouldn't want to be around? Paul had this part of him that was attractive. Paul had this part of him that people wanted to be with, that people wanted to be around. And we find the clues to that is in here. It wasn't that Paul was always calling people out. It wasn't that Paul was always getting in people's face. He would do it when the greater good required it. I mean, most of us, especially as men in here, if we had to defend our country, we would take up arms and we would go to war. But that wouldn't be our norm. It's not that we just say, we want to fight all the time and be carrying you know, those weapons of war all the time and be dodging bullets all the time. No, they, uh, those who serve us like that do it so that we can live in freedom and so that we can have peace is what uh, it's supposed to be. And so we think about how many times in the Christian life we forget. Now, is our Christian life a war? Yeah, yeah, it is. Paul said that the Christian life is like an athlete He describes it to Timothy as someone who is running the race, competing by the rules to win a crown. He describes it as a soldier who pleases the one who has enlisted him. You who have served in the military, take that to heart about your relationship with God. And then he describes it as a farmer who plants the crop and is patient to wait for the harvest to come in later on. Those are three very apt metaphors of the Christian life. And sometimes we take the thing of a soldier and we're always acting like a soldier against each other. And you'll notice Paul didn't do that. In fact, in Ephesians 6, he told us very clearly, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And yet so many of us act like we do. And we treat other people as though they are the enemy and we're always in combat mode with other people. Paul wasn't. Paul wasn't. Gentle, nursing, mother, a father giving a charge to his children, a gentle among you. All of these things describe Paul. And it describes for us that we ought to follow in his footsteps because these are the things that so aptly describe our Lord Jesus when he walked on earth. And so we think about all of our relationships ought to have these same characteristics. Why? Just so that we'll get along with one another? Well, I hope you do. 
but really so that God will be glorified. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Jesus even said when he sent out his disciples, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of ravenous wolves. Now, be wise as a serpent, but, and we forget this part, harmless as a dove. God's ways are not our ways. And we might advise God and say, terrible marketing strategy. And yet, look, the church remains 2,000 years later. The gospel is still going forth. And so many other things have fallen by the wayside. Every once in a while, on the internet, on social media, there'll be something that'll be brought up and it comes up from my childhood. And I go, oh, I remember that. Well, why did I have to remember it? Because I'd kind of forgotten it. Wasn't all that memorable. It was something I had to be reminded of. And there are a lot of things, fads and things that come and go in this world. About the time older people are trying to be young. So they see what young people are wearing. So they take on that, that style of clothing. And you know what the young people do? They go, oh, that's the way old people dress. And they move on to something else. That's why Facebook, when it first came out, it was for young people. It was made for college students. You had to be actually enrolled in a college campus in order to be on Facebook. Now, the younger people, they all say Facebook. Oh, that's for old people. They've moved on to other things. That's the way it is in the world. Fads come and go and all of that. And yet here we are still talking about the same Bible, about the same situation in Thessalonica, about the same Lord, about the same gospel, because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and how long? Forever. Well, that's a good thing. He never changes. Which means the way he loved you when he died on the cross for you is the way he loves you today. You say, well, I'm not worthy of that love. You never were worthy of that love. Don't, don't sweat that part of it. You've always been unworthy. Remember that old joke they used to tell about the person who went to see a psychiatrist? And he says, I'm just suffering from an inferior, inferiority complex. And then after he told his story, he said, what do I do? The doctor said, I don't know. You don't have a complex. You really are inferior. And uh, that's kind of the way it is when it talks about being unworthy of the Lord's love. You never were worthy and you never will be worthy of it. It's given to you by uh, free grace and sovereign grace. And that's a wonderful thing. And so the Lord doesn't change. So his relationship, his thoughts towards you as a father, the Bible says, outnumber the sands of the sea. Well, you, you talk about, you know, some people say, this is really cool. I got a text every day from my girlfriend or from my boyfriend. Isn't that great? How many texts would you get from God if they outnumber the sands of the sea? And yet he thinks about you daily and constantly because he loves you and he does not change. So that love will never change. That's one of the reasons you can't lose your salvation because that means God's relationship to you would have to change. And he doesn't change. He does everything perfectly. So when we look at what Paul said and why he was so effective, maybe we could learn. How could I be a better husband? Well, we'll find it in here. Even though this passage is not about marriage... But it gives us an example of relationships. How could you be a better wife? Well, you can find it in here. How could you be more effective for Christ on the workplace? I think you'll find it here. How could you be a better brother or a sister? You'll find it 
right here. This is just so power-packed and so amazing. So we go to number one. Here's the very first thing, and this is the heart of it. Number one is pleasing God, not man. And I don't know why it is we think that whenever we please God, we've got to be angry. We've got to be negative. We've got to be a bully. We've got to push people away. Well, Paul didn't do that. In fact, Paul is very winsome here, and he's uh, attractive, and these people love him, and he is having an impact on them in a short period of time. If I was someplace for a month, they would never remember me again. But Paul, they remember him, and uh, that month was very impactful. Not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. And I think that's the key. It all boils down to this. It's not so much what your actions are, it's not so much about your words. Those things are important, but they've got to come from a heart that is right with God. You can say the right words without any heart in it. You can say the right words and yet your heart be actually corrupt and those words become somewhat toxic. And so Paul said, this all started our relationship with you because we weren't seeking just to please you. Because people can smell that a mile away. He said, it happened though, we were approved by God and we were entrusted with the gospel. And the thing is, we were seeking to please the God who sent us. And God actually blessed this whole situation. Paul was not perfect. We know that from Romans 7. The things that I ought to do, I don't do. And the things I would do, I don't do. Uh, oh, wretched man that I am, he said, who shall deliver me? And uh, so we know he's not perfect, but he wasn't a charlatan. This wasn't the greatest show on earth. This wasn't the next big thing. This wasn't the come and see the Paul and Silas show and give lots of money and buy us lots of new chariots or something like that. Nothing like that at all. In fact, Paul is writing these verses, kind of defending himself a little bit because he was under attack. There were accusations about Paul that he was uh, just doing this to please man. His message is a fake. He just did that to please you so you don't think you have to follow the Jewish legal system, which is very difficult. So he's giving you something that will please you as a Gentile and letting you off the hook. Paul said, no, we didn't. Others said he's doing it for personal gain. The word used for flattery here, kalakia, is, uh, always describes the flattery whose motive is gain. In other words, I fluff you up, I build you up. I remember one time, uh, just before I became pastor here, Papa Sam told me about a guy that he had in, I won't say his name, he said, it's interesting, the only friends he made in the church, in Graceway, were rich people, wealthy people. You know there are people like that? Because they're always thinking, what can I get? What can you give me? What will you see? What will your heart be moved to pour into my life? It's not your spiritual well-being. It's their gain. There are people who travel the country, people who are on TV, and they will preach to you, but they're preaching to you because they want to get what you've got. And that's what they were saying about Paul. He was just a charlatan. He had demands for personal gain. In 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul writes, and this is his heart, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to God. 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's you, that's me, that's Paul. That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust well known in your consciences. In other words, Paul said, whatever they may say, you have seen and experienced the truth, and God knows the truth as well. We're pleasing him. Secondly, the relationship Paul had with the Thessalonians, it was honest, authentic, and selfless. Honest, authentic, and selfless. I say honest because... We kind of lie to each other all the time. Do you like this? And we hate it, but we feel bad about saying we hate it. And so we go, oh yeah, I love it. And then we talk about how ugly and how awful it is later on to everyone else. I wouldn't have one of those, or I would never wear that, or can you believe they look like that kind of stuff? Am I right? And there are a lot of times when we say things Did I offend you? Oh, no. Oh, no. You didn't offend me. And you can sort of tell by the tone and by the look and by the body language that it sure looks like you did, but they will put it off. How are you doing today? You you must really be stressed out. Oh, no. I'm just living for Jesus, trusting the Lord, and living in the joy of the Lord. Well, you got worry lines all over your face. And why your mind is so eaten up and occupied with whatever is going on. But we can't let people know that. Paul said our relationship was honest. Now, I don't necessarily want you unloading all of your negative baggage on everybody else. I'm just simply saying face the facts that there is kind of a climate of dishonesty. How are you doing? And our standard answer is, oh, I'm great, whether you are or not. And we're not very careful about that. Paul said that wasn't the way we were. We were honest with one another. And then I've got the word down as authentic. We were real. We were real. I would take that to mean, the way Paul describes this, that when he would deal with the Thessalonian people, they knew and could see and sense some of his struggles and flaws. He wasn't the hero of every story that he told. He wasn't always successful, always the model everyone should follow. He was human. He was real. He struggled. He tripped. He fell. One time when he's in front of the high priest, he lost his temper. Remember that story? And uh, they said, uh, you would revile the high priest? And he said, well, I didn't know he was a high priest. Apparently, he had eye trouble. And uh, Paul had, he was human. Those kind of things. And he let the people of Thessalonica be human as well. I mean, after all, these are baby Christians. They don't know how to dress modestly. They don't know what their morals ought to be completely. They're not sure how ethically they ought to be. They're not real good at relationships. I mean, good night, they have been inundated with paganism and uh, rampant immorality for decades. And now all of a sudden, they've got to retrain everything that they think. And so there's a realness, a rawness, an authenticity in their relationship that they have. And then Paul also says it was selfless. 
Paul wasn't saying, well, you know, here's what you guys ought to do for me. He says in here that we had rights as apostles that we could have demanded, but he laid those things down for the sake of the church. Those baby Christians couldn't handle it. And I think maybe Paul, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, knew that if he took everything he deserved as an apostle, <clears throat> when the accusers came later on, those baby Christians wouldn't know how to handle it. And they might actually go, well, maybe there's something to this. So Paul went the extra mile and overboard not to take advantage of them, even though he certainly could have. But neither at any time did we use flattering words, just fluffing you up. As you know, as a cloak for covetousness, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, uh, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. So he's not manipulative. They're self-denying love. And uh, in your walk with God, let me ask you a question. Jesus talks in Matthew 16, 24. Um, if you're going to follow me, you've got to take up your cross. And then it says, deny yourself. Can I ask you a question? <clears throat> Where does self-denial fit into your Christianity? And in modern American Christianity, there's not much of it. It's about satisfying self. God wants you comfortable. God wants you rich. God wants you healthy. God wants, and we try so hard to satisfy self. We're not going to be inconvenienced. We're not going to be put out. We're not going to give any more than we actually have to give of ourselves or of our time or even of our money, of course. And Paul is such a model of something different of that. He just absolutely denied himself and followed up. I followed after Christ. So again, you know, when you get married, the minister stands in front of you and he does not say, okay, to the woman, how do you feel about this guy? Don't you feel good about this guy? And oh, I just get all tingly and lovey-dovey and it's so great. Good. So till the tingle departs, when the tingle departs, so must you. Is that right? There's not a word in there that he asked you to vow to about feelings, did he? He did not say you promised to always feel that way towards your wife or your husband. But you promised to act the right way. He was appealing to you as you made promises, this is the way I will act. I will love. I will honor. I will cherish. Richer, poorer, better for worse right? This is what Paul was doing as he would minister, traveling place to place. It didn't feel good in Philippi. It didn't feel good in Thessalonica when they had to run for their lives. But he did it anyway. Why? Because he was serving the Lord and he was setting an example for the Thessalonian believers. You don't act on how you Feel. You act on what is right. You fulfill what you have promised. You do what is necessary. You mamas, you didn't get up with your infant at three in the morning because it felt good, did you? You got up because it needed to be done. 
Parents, you take care of your children, you provide for your children, you put money into your children, you clothe your children, you feed your children. It doesn't always feel good, and they don't always return the good smiles and giggles and all of that kind of stuff. Sometimes it's rough, and yet you do what you're supposed to do because it is right. And God honors it when we do that, and we ought to try to do it, of course, with a right heart. So take that to uh, heart. Number three, notice that Paul uses these words, gentle, loving, and life-giving. Gentle, loving, and life-giving. I want to ask you a question. In your interactions with other people, maybe in your family, with your children, with your spouse, or maybe in the church, or maybe at the workplace, would you be characterized as gentle? That's almost like a dirty word today. Not letting people run over me. I'm not going to be a doormat. Boy, I'm going to stand up. Paul would have rebuked you. He said the effectiveness came because he was gentle, he was loving, and he was life-giving. Notice that metaphor, gentle among you as a nursing mother. Okay, Here is my daughter-in-law, our daughter-in-law, Jennifer, with our grandson Sutton. Just a little over four pounds, kind of struggling. Can you imagine if she were laying there at three in the morning and it's time to feed him and she goes, nah, and just rolls back over and goes to sleep. Terrible. Or can you imagine if she goes, okay, okay, okay. She gets up, throws the covers back and gets up and grabs him by the arm and pulls him out of that bassinet there by one arm and comes up and says, eat and do it fast. He'd say, child abuse. You know, I'm afraid sometimes if God were to take us and the way we treat his children, he might charge us with child abuse. Because Paul said to these people, we were gentle like a mother that nurses her children gentle that is the very definition of gentleness and that's the way we're called to be jesus said come to me all ye who are weary and heavy laden and i'll give you rest and then the very first thing he says for i am gentle of heart where's the gentleness in our lives where's the gentleness in the way that we treat other people where's the gentleness in the way that even that we confront sin in someone else's life Remember, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we sure do act like it sometime. And so this is just affectionate here. He uses the words affectionately longing for you. And we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but also our own lives. Well, isn't that what a nursing mother is doing? When she is nursing, she takes in nourishment. It is made into milk. And then she gives that to the child, imparting her life to the child and that's what Paul said we're supposed to do with one another this is the way that we are supposed to live and uh, you think about all that that implies now we uh, think about number four that uh, this love we're going to mention again but notice this we phrased it this way that is memorable and demonstrable you remember it and it was clearly seen I don't know how many times I've done a funeral and I've heard particularly a a daughter say something like this. Well, dad never told us he loved us, but we never doubted it. 
Gee, why'd you never doubt it? He wasn't a man who spoke like that. He didn't do that. How, how, why did you never doubt it? Because of the way that he lived. Because of the way he took care of us. Because of the way that he provided. In other words, actions speak louder than what? Words. That's not that you shouldn't say the words. So all of you men, I am not advocating do not tell your children or your wife or anybody else that you love them. You should say it. But at the same time, how many people in the culture in which we live say those words but never follow up? Out-of-wedlock births are sky high right now in our culture. And I wonder how many of those mothers that gave birth were told by a guy, I will love you tomorrow. I will always be here for you. One day we'll get married and we'll raise this child together. Well, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. And what Paul is getting down to is, this is not just something that they say. You know, a lot of people say they love their church and never go to it. What, what's wrong with that picture? You hang around people that you love. Don't, don't tell me you love me if you don't ever want to be around me. Isn't that right? And uh, the talk is cheap. People say, well, I'm committed to this cause. Really? Well, do you ever go to the meetings? Do you ever show up for anything? Eh, no, it's too inconvenient. Yeah, well, then you're not terribly committed to the cause. I've got other things to do. There are other things that, well, then that's what you really, really love. You get the picture? And Paul is saying something here. He says, verse 9, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil. And our laboring night and day that we might, be, might not be a burden to any of you. We preached to you the gospel of God. In other words, love was not something that he left them to just assume. We think Paul loves us. I'm pretty sure Paul loves us. It was clear that Paul loved this church. And they responded to him in uh, like fashion. It was demonstrable. Now, the definition of demonstrable, this is from the dictionary, clearly apparent or capable of being logically proved. Now, that ought to be the way your walk with God is. Readily apparent and easily proven. That ought to be the way your walk with God in the church is. Your love for the church. It ought to be readily apparent and easily proved. That's the way it ought to be for your husband or for your wife. That's what you promised anyway. That's what you said. And you ought to be acting that way now. And it would clear up a lot of problems if you would just do that. Somebody's got to do it. Well, I will if he will. No, it didn't work like that. If God had done that for you, you would be still be lost. You've got to take the initiative. You've got to do what's right. And the same thing is true on the job. The same thing is true at school. The same thing is true wherever you may be. This is something that it ought to be readily apparent and easily proved. And uh, so many times we find people that are not quite there yet. And that's why the uh, Bible would go on to tell us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 18. My little children, this is exactly what I've been saying. Let us not love in word or in tongue, but how? In deed and in truth. In other words, it ought to be something that's real. If you say it, live it. Show it. Demonstrate it. Let there be no doubt about it, in other words. Now in this era of camouflage Christianity, 
No wonder we're not impacting the world the way this first century church did. They were out there. And it was readily apparent, demonstrable. And they learned that from the Apostle Paul. You see, the difference between the Corinth and Thessalonica, uh, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse 10, here's what the Corinthians said about the same guy, Paul. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. I think the King James Version says his speech is contemptible. He's not much of a preacher. He's not much of an orator. I like so-and-so a whole lot better than him. And that's why they didn't get anything. The Thessalonians were different. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men or a performance or a game or entertainment, but as it was what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. That's the difference. What kind of church are we, a Corinth or a Thessalonica? A Corinth or a Thessalonica? And that really boils down to not what the church as a whole is, but what you as an individual are. So I challenge you. Are you a Corinthian or a Thessalonican? I challenge you to be a Thessalonican. And so I close by saying this. Strive to do some things. Here's your application. Strive to be pleasing to God. That's where it starts or where it ends. Strive to be authentic as a Christian. If you say it, live it, in other words. Be one. Be one. Be a life giver, like Paul was, like that nursing mother. Be someone who gives life. Some people suck the life out of a room. They suck the life out of relationships. They suck the life out of anything that is good or godly or holy or even fun. They just are takers all the time. No, be a life giver. Put life into others. Then leave pleasant, edifying memories. Pleasant, edifying memories. Yeah, for your children. Yeah, for your grandchildren, of course, of course. But what about for your neighbors? What about for people on the job? What about for people even in the church? What about for people in your Sunday school class? Do you leave pleasant, edifying memories? Or by the time you get through, have you depressed them so bad that they're glad you're gone? Are you so completely drawing life from them that they feel empty when you leave instead of going, wow, that was refreshing. Boy, that was a blessing because this is how Paul lived and this is why Paul was remembered and this is why he was loved and this is why he was so impactful after only a month with people he had never met before. So if we'll take these things and strive to do them, you think that would help our witness? I think so. You think it would help us serve other people? I'm pretty sure it would. Pretty sure it would. You think it might make our relationships better and stronger, happier and healthier? Yeah, I would, I would make a guess it might work like that. Just might. Try it. Remember the old commercial, old people? Try it. You'll like it. 
It's kind of what I'm saying here. Try it. You'll like it. Some of you, you haven't smiled in so long, your face would crack if you did. Try it. Try greeting people with a smile. Try talking to a stranger and just saying a kind word, even a thank you. Try expressing appreciation and love for people that you'll, well, they know I love them. It's not the point. It's not the point. Leave pleasant and edifying memories. Okay? Well, that's all I got. So I shall quit. Yeah? Now it's up to you. What are you going to do with what the Word of God says? That's where it goes. I'll leave it with you. Heavenly Father, there are people here today who have never trusted Christ as their Savior and Lord. And they don't know and they don't understand that they're going to hell without Christ because they are sinners. And they don't understand and they don't believe that Jesus Christ came to earth and lived a perfect life for them and died on the cross for them so that you punish them, for, punish Christ for their sin and then Jesus rose from the dead and is exalted as Lord of all. And if they will call upon him and trust him, they'll be saved and they'll receive the righteousness of Christ. And you'll treat them like Christ. Pray that today they be saved. But there are a whole lot more here who have been saved, have received forgiveness, have understood the grace of God. But you'd never know it because they're camouflage or stealth believers. They're not committed enough to the church to really cause a stir. Nobody notices. They don't really have that life-giving, loving quality and gentleness that Paul had. They're gruff, rough, self-centered. Everything's got to be their way. Taking of life rather than imparting life. So Lord, forgive us and help us to be more like Paul, who was being Christ-like at this point. In Jesus' name, amen.